Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Well, we're looking this morning at Revelation 4 and 5, and as you can see, there's a lot here that uh, requires a lot of attention. But just so that we don't get uh, caught losing the forest for the trees, uh, I want us to do an overview of both of these chapters this morning because they are indeed one scene. The book of Revelation uh, is such a layered book. There's so much going on. You could spend decades just looking at this book and not necessarily for like the weird futuristic stuff that we often look uh, at it for, but just to see the way that John uses the scripture and the way that uh, he just in the spirit amazingly just layered this thing layer after layer after layer. There's constant uh, allusions to the Old Testament. There's constant allusions to the seven days of creation. There's constant allusion to the the way that Israel worked in the Old Testament. I really do wish I could spend more time, but I think we would uh, probably get exasperated if I stayed in here for decades and decades. Uh, But just roughly, if you want to look at the way the book of Revelation is broken down, you can just think about this one phrase, in the Spirit. There are four scenes that happen in the book of Revelation, and each new scene is... Uh, tipped off by this phrase, in the Spirit. You'll remember back in chapter 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And that's when he saw that revelation of Jesus with the the voice like waters and trumpets and uh, him exalted as this great high priest walking among the lampstands. And in today's passage, we we see the same thing in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. And this vision is actually going to take us through chapter 16. So this is a long one. And what's basically going on here from chapter 4 through chapter 16, if you have eyes to see it, is a worship service. John is invited up into a a heavenly worship service uh, because you have a call to worship in the beginning of chapter 4. There's praise. Uh, There's this proclamation of the word as this scroll is broken open and these seals Uh, broken so that the scroll can be released. There's prayer and there's even the pouring of wine, not necessarily in communion, but in wrath. And so John, after looking at the tumultuous situation of these seven churches, God takes him and draws him up into a worship service. And we could probably stop and preach a sermon right there. You need Sunday morning. Now I know you know you need Sunday morning because you're here. But the word eccentric, you know this word? That's where uh, someone just is so eccentric, they, they seem scattered. That, that, that word means without center. They don't seem to have a center. And so what Sunday morning is intended to do is to recenter you in God's purpose and God's mission and, and who God is. We need this together because our week kind of pulls us apart and frays us and it fractures the universe and our minds. And what the Bible and what singing together and being with one another is supposed to do is to draw us up into heaven so that we can kind of look at the chaos around us in a new way. And that's that's what's going on here. John is drawn up into this heavenly worship service, and it's going to go on for a little while. It's going to end with him eating a scroll and uh, all kinds of things. But we see first here the 
this scene where God is, is drawing John up, Jesus is, uh, into this heavenly worship service after saying so much to these churches. You'll remember the letter to the church at Laodicea ends talking about a throne. Look, look back up at chapter 3, verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So having spoken about a throne, now John is drawn up into the very throne room of God. And throne is a key word. Around the throne, beside the throne, the throne, the throne, the throne is John 4 and John 5. As opposed to looking at these churches uh, and seeing some signs of hope, uh, seeing a lot of problems, and with that last one being just near uh, dead, Laodicea, um, John is now drawn up into heaven where he sees the Lord uh, sitting there. Uh, and so this morning, I just want us to look at this, these chapters uh, under a couple of headings. First of all, we see God. That's the first. And then the second is we see God's plan. We see God, and then we see God's plan. Because indeed, that's what happens here. The first thing we see is we see God is full of glory. Full of glory. Um, in the Bible, God is often described using human terms anthropomorphism. The arm of the Lord is not so short that he cannot reach, right? And other sorts of creational pictures are used as a hen gathers her chicks, Jesus said, so I would have gathered you around me. The eye of the Lord uh, goes to and throw, fro throughout the whole earth to give so strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. As we think about the Lord, we like to describe him in, in ways that we can relate to with these anthropomorphisms. But what's interesting here is that the closer John gets to the throne, the less he does that. There's no anthropomorphism in this passage. He's close to God. There's nothing to describe. How, how could you take this and craft an idol from this? And that's the point. As he gets closer to the Lord, it gets more uh, indescribable. It says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So these are these two stones, one probably green, one probably reddish. And around the throne, there was a rainbow. Uh, I think that's the Greek word iris. It just means kind of a shimmering uh, that had the appearance of an emerald. And so John, in trying to describe things, uses a lot of as and like and, and these sorts of things because as he gets close, there's just no way to describe what he sees, the beauty that is there. And then around the throne are these 24 thrones. And then there's these four living creatures. We see from the Lord here that it's, he's indescribably beautiful. And this is important because I think in most of our lives, what we're after is uh, to be overwhelmed by beauty, right? Just be overwhelmed by beauty. Sometimes I've been married 17 years, even yesterday, and I hate to get sappy and sentimental like this, but just, my wife's eyes, right? Just look at her eyes, and it's like I looked at them for the first time again. 17 years happened yesterday. 
Um, and you just, you just, your breath catches. Wow. Not only do those eyes see right through me, but I like the way they look. We want beauty. This is why we go on vacations to the mountains. I'm going to the mountains this week. I'm going to hear Dr. Moeller speak at Billy Graham's Cove. I'm stoked, all right? Uh, and part of going up there is just to see the leaves change, to see the beauty. It's so moving. I never feel more human than I do when I'm experiencing beauty. All the kind of questions that haunt my mind just evaporate, and I just stand there and soak in a minute, and I feel I was made to, to feel things like this. And the earth is just, um, just a small picture of what we were intended to do forever, which is to look at the beauty of God, to be overwhelmed by it, to, to feel finally and fully and completely and truly human in the presence of a beauty that we respond to. God displays glory. And if you just boil humanity down, we're a bunch of ways to take something in and one way to send stuff out. We're given all of these senses to bring in beauty, and then we're given mouths and bodies to praise and to respond. I love soccer when I see a goal that just required teamwork all the way back from the defense up through the midfield. I know I'm losing most of you right now because I'm not talking about college football. Uh, with a long pass from the midfield to a guy who just does a bicycle kick right into the goal, I just jump up and scream. That was a moment of beauty, right, of the virtue of work. And John is standing here showing us a foretaste of what it will be like to be truly human, to be standing in the presence of beauty that we can't even describe. But it's a scary beauty, isn't it? There's a lot of symbolism here. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass. That could be translated ice, sea of ice, like crystal. The symbolism here goes back to the Old Testament. This is exactly what we see in um, Exodus 19, where the Lord is giving his word to the people of Israel, and there's these thunders and, and, and lightning and flashes. And there's a reason why, even though this is beautiful, it's a scary beauty. It's a scary beauty because the Lord, in this scene here, this is a judgment scene. And I'll, I'll explain to you why that's the case. What's amazing, just to give you another way that the book of Revelation goes, these 24 elders, uh, they get off their thrones to worship the Lord, and they never get back on them. Do you know why? Because at the end of the book, the martyrs who dress exactly like the elders get on the throne. The book of Revelation is about uh, the laying down of the old covenant that was delivered through angels. And it's about the picking up of the new covenant where men are now priests to the Lord. Men come up and join into God's mighty counsel. Uh, the old covenant, it says in Galatians, was given through angels. And the new covenant was given through the man Jesus. And the, the whole track of Revelation follows that trend where the angels get off the throne and now mankind enters into his destiny of being part of the council of God. That's something going on there. That's a, la a layer we haven't even really looked at. But it's a scary thing because this is a scene of judgment. We've, elders were what you went before uh, in order to try a lot of crimes. In Deuteronomy, if a kid was rebellious, you took him before the elders and you said, this kid's rebellious, and they were stoned. Elders were the ones who made the decisions. And now this is a court scene 
Because you have the throne of God here, which is where you go for justice, and there are elders there. So this is beauty, but it's scary beauty. And the amazing thing is, as the Lord goes through the book of Revelation, and these martyrs and the people of God are exalted, it says that the Lord comes close. Finally, the dwelling place of God is with man, and you have all the beauty, and you don't have any of the scary. That's kind of the big transition that's going on here. Y'all follow that? And so there's this scary beauty going. John is overwhelmed with it. The Lord has glory. The Lord is on a throne because justice is getting ready to, to be done. Uh, the Lord not only has a throne, God's got a posse. Right? The Lord's got a posse. Who is the Lord's posse? Well, it is these 24 elders. Some people argue that this is... a uh, the, the summation of the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God as if this represents the church throughout all ages. I just don't think that's the case because these guys don't talk as if they're part of the church. You, they, they sing, you purchased for yourself, you saved them. And elders throughout the book of Revelation explain things. In an apocalyptic literature, that's the job of angels. So these are God's 24 angels. This, this group maybe that we hear about uh, all the time in the Old Testament where the Lord takes his place among the heavenly council. And that's the picture here. He's got a posse. If you were to come to my house on Saturday morning and bang on the door, chances are good I would answer and you would see me in sweatpants and an old t-shirt or in yard working stuff. I'm so glad the grass is getting ready to change and I don't have to mow every week. I love the fall when my grass is brown and dead. <laughs> You'd see me doing lawn work. If you came to my door, what wouldn't come to the door is a butler. Right? But as you go up in society, if you went and knocked on the White House, if you could get through the gate and get close without getting shot with those missile launchers that are apparently on the top of it, uh, you wouldn't knock on the door, and certainly President Trump would answer. And if you went to England, to Buckingham Palace, and you knocked on the door, the higher you go up in regality, the bigger your posse gets, right? The more distance there is between you and the person. What, what is God's posse here? Now, it's these 24 elders sitting there, listening as God is getting ready to pass judgment on an evil people. And then you have these four living creatures. Four is a number that generally represents the earth, the four corners of the earth, right? The four winds. Whenever this number four appears in the scripture, it's generally symbolic of the earth. And so these four living creatures kind of represent everything that God made. And then you have these representative animals, lions and oxen, which represent strength, and an eagle, which represents soaring ability, and you know, this eyesight that's piercing, and man that represents reason. The Lord is there uh, on his judgment throne with his posse around him. This is a scene of regality, a scene of glory, and I fear that we live in a day and an age where we're being desensitized to this. Uh, just because of our ability to make things look really cool. I love the Infinity Wars Marvel movie. Right? I saw Marvel, the Infinity Wars. The way, you may not like it at all, and that's fine. You can pass judgment secretly in your heart. Um, the whole plot of the movie is there's this bad guy. He's trying to get these Infinity Stones so that with one snap of his finger, he can destroy half the universe, Right? Uh, and the problem with that is that in the end, he wins. Now, of course, there's a second one coming, and we'll figure out how they undo all the bad. 
But think about what it does to your soul to experience something like somebody doing this and you have all these grand visions on a screen of earths being destroyed and people being vaporized. Like, what, you would think that the ability to do all of that would have increased our imagination, but I don't know about you, Hollywood's losing its imagination. The more grand things that we can make up, it seems, the more movie franchises they reboot instead of doing anything original. Just being overstimulated has, has killed our imagination, hasn't it? Uh, and so that makes it difficult. We should, we should be moved probably when somebody snaps their finger and half of every living creature evaporates. But we don't. Uh, but when you see something like that, uh, that uh, typhoon that recently hit Hong Kong, right? We got worried about Florence, but at the same time, did you see that typhoon that hit Hong Kong with the winds coming in at 150 miles an hour? Like, we need to see that kind of stuff because that is like part of the scene that's going on here. This God has got a posse. He's got glory. He's got a throne. He's got lots of power. And that's what John sees, this, this Lord. John uses numbers in all sorts of crazy ways. Do you know how many songs there are in chapters 4 and 5 in this one scene? There are five songs. That, that's a number that kind of symbolizes strength. How many fingers do you have on your hand? So this is a God who is worshipped in strength. It's a scary beauty, though. He's got a throne. He's got a posse. But even in spite of all of these things that might scare, those who are closest to him still praise him. He's got five songs in this passage. This is so important to me. So we're coming up on my 10th anniversary, November 4th. Like I said, I'm still happy to be here. Still got dreams about the future. There are still things we can do, still ways that we can change in spite of all the good things that the Lord has done here. The number one thing I want is what's going on here. I remember when I visited Emmanuel for the first time to preach. I don't mean to pour shade on anybody. Throw shade? I'm down with the kids. I don't mean to throw shade on anybody here, but my first thought when I came here at the first worship service, I just thought, man, these people don't sing. They don't sing. I just, they didn't sing. There's been a lot of turnover since then, and we're doing better. Just so you know, at my 20th anniversary, here's what I want to be able to say. Are you ready? That people are either impressed or a little bit put off at how loud we sing when we gather. <laughs> really. I... We need to sing louder. And some of you say to me, Drew, I just don't want to offend the people in front of you. Offend them. I give you permission to offend them. <laughs> sing loud because you're not quiet when something really blows you away, right? And as these people who are close to God uh, again and again just look and see a different aspect of his beauty, another song comes out. We've said this before. The imperative that is repeated most in Scripture is what? Sing. So listen to me. I'm challenging you. Not, the challenge is not to sing louder to make Drew happy. The challenge is to respond correctly to glorious truths. Right? To respond correctly to glorious truths. Pray that the Lord, every time we gather together, will just reveal another aspect of his glory that will make you uncontrollably loud when you sing. We need to be much louder. We need for visitors to come in here and go, well, I don't know what's going on there, but man, they sing. Because our singing to God's glory, even in spite of all the evil that is going on around us, is a threat to the world. These people's hearts are centered on a different thing. 
they're responding to a different thing. They're looking somewhere else than everybody else is looking, and it's giving them joy and a song. Listen to me, please sing loud. I visited Capitol Hill Baptist Church uh, a few years back. It's a church in Washington, D.C., and all they have in terms of their praise team is like an old piano and a guitar through a, a poor sound system. Um, but when you get there, you are, you feel the notes. Uh, not for my sake, but just, that's what we need here. We need to sing a whole lot louder. You need to feel a little bit hoarse when you leave. Miss Linda probably feels a little hoarse, right? She's got all of that. We need to feel hoarse when we leave because we've sung. We need to feel a little exhausted. I was amazing, right? Pray for the Lord's presence to show up. Listen to his word because we're not bowled over by much anymore. We live in a world where we're overstimulated until a real threat shows up, real beauty shows up, and we want that to happen week in and week out so that we can sing. So in chapter 4, we see this God who is glorious, full of power, sitting on his judgment throne with the elders around him, and then in chapter 5, we begin to see another side. We see God's plan. John, overwhelmed by the scene, now looks at chapter 5. Where he looks at the throne, and it says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. If we were good Old Testament readers, we would know that most of this scene comes from the book of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 2, there is also this grand scene of the Lord with all these resplendent images. And then there's the scroll in his hand. And in Ezekiel, the scroll is written on both sides. Now, just so you're aware, that was difficult to do in those days. Most scrolls were not written on both sides because with the scroll, apparently, quoting D.A. Carson here, the way it was made is one side was smooth and then the other side was rough. Uh, and so you generally wrote on one side. If you wrote on two sides, it's because there was something that you really wanted to keep together. You didn't want them to get separated. And that generally was reserved for judicial pronouncements. And that's what it is in Ezekiel. God is getting ready to pronounce judgment on his people Israel because of their idolatry and their sin. And that's what we see here. Not only is God in Ezekiel pronouncing uh, judgment on idolatry for its sin, God is also proclaiming his plan for the future to renew and to redeem Israel, right? And so this scroll, it was important that it be read. It was important that it be read because until the scroll was read, the plan didn't kick into action. In other words, all of the people who were making the people of God suffer were not going to face judgment, and all of God's plans for the future were not going to be brought into effect unless someone could come along who could read the scroll. And so when that mighty angel announces out, is there anybody worthy to open the scroll? You might think to yourself, well, it's at God's right hand. God is worthy to open the scroll. There's just one problem. Who did God create to do his work through? Mankind. If you look in Genesis 1 and 2, the overtones there are that God made man to be uh, prophets, priests, and kings. 
Adam was told to subdue the earth. That's kingly language, to have dominion over the earth. Adam was uh, put there to tend and to keep the garden. In the Hebrew, that's language used of the Levitical priests to guard the temple. And then Adam was to be the protector of the word of God, which was, thou shalt not eat of this tree, and you shall be fruitful and multiply. He was to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. He was to be the one that was to take that garden and spread it over the earth so that the earth was covered with the glory of God like the waters covered the sea. Adam failed. And so the Lord called a man named Abram and gave him a people named Israel. And Israel was to be a prophetic priest-king people. It was then their job to carry the plan of God, to, to, to be what God used to redeem and to renew the earth. And like Adam, Israel failed. And so it's a huge deal that there would be somebody who could open up this scroll because I don't know about you, I don't suffer all that much, but there's a lot of suffering in this world that makes my hair curl. I, I told you this before, I counseled a lady one time whose dad sold her into sex slavery when she was 12. Around here, here. I went last Friday night, I led worship at uh, Celebrate Recovery, which is like a, a Christian 12 Steps program. And you hear stories of people's lives who were just wreckage. One guy uh, stood up and talked about his mother who was abusive that led to him, uh, part of what led him for 30 years to use cocaine and just describing his life. There's just a lot of mess in the world. And then there's also hopes that we have that the world be better, that God use the church and the gospel to, to make the world better. And, and, and the gospel does make the world better. You remember the story of John Wesley? He, he moaned a certain fact. He, he traveled all through Georgia and England and was part of the Great Awakening and established the Methodist Church. John Wesley lived a very simple life. And one of the things that he always bemoaned is that people who got saved and started living Christian lives started to collect wealth because they were no longer giving it away at everything. And he's like, you should be giving it all away and living simply. But what was interesting is, uh, and I think they lived like middle-class lives, but these people were brought into blessing because they believed the gospel. So there's all this suffering in the world. There's all this hope that we have that God might work. And the Lord has intended to use humanity to do that. And every time the Lord intends humanity to do that, what does humanity do? Fails, fails miserably. I fail miserably. And this is why John weeps. Because until this scroll is opened, there is no pro proclamation of the new heavens and the new earth. And until this scroll is opened, there's no judgment to be proclaimed against the enemies of God who are persecuting the people of God. Unless this happens, the church still suffers. And unless this happens, nothing good comes. And the angel stands and he says, is there anybody who can open this scroll? And it says there was silence in heaven. And John began to weep. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly. You ever had the snubs? You know what the snubs are? That's where you, and you go, <laughs> and we call those the snubs in my house, right? He, he, he's got the snubs. I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 5, and then one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Don't cry. Why? Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Here's, here's the gospel in so many words, is that everywhere where humanity failed, everywhere where you failed, 
everywhere where I continue to fail, Jesus didn't fail. He didn't fail. The Bible says he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was more tempted than you are, yet without sin. And because, and, and so what we have in Jesus, the God-man, is we finally have a man who is truly human. And because Jesus truly lived a human life, God is going to, through the God-man Jesus, bring about all of the promises that he's made to his people. Jesus didn't fail where Adam failed. Jesus didn't fail where Israel failed. Jesus didn't fail where we fail. And because of that, one of the most quoted passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament is Psalm 110. You know what Psalm 110 says? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Because Jesus didn't fail, God is determined to fix the world through him. Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, uh, Jesus is the man. Right? And he's the one through whom God is going to clean up this mess. And not only is God going to clean up this mess, the Lord's going to fix us. You see, what's amazing about the book of Revelation is people read it, and they, they say something like, well, in the end, Jesus wins. That's actually wrong. Uh, in the middle, Jesus won. He, he's reigning and ruling now. Jesus won at the beginning of Revelation. The, the whole point of the book of the Revelation is that because of Jesus, we win. Right? He, he, takes us, he, he said to Laodicea, you're going to share my throne. And so at the end of the book, the Bible says that we are priests and kings forever because of him. Everything seems to happen in heaven first, and then it works its way down. And that's what we see here. Jesus is already glorified. He's already received the kingdom. The message isn't he wins. Peter Lightheart says this. The message is we win by faithful witness and song and in triumphing through Jesus, we receive the kingdom. Revelation is not good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus for the sins of the world. It is the good news that the sacrificial deaths and vindication of martyrs bring the collapse of the old creation and bring in the new. And that's where we see this lion. How did he triumph? We'll close with this. How did this lion triumph? All these great kingly th things. And this happens several times in the book of Revelation where John will hear something and it's one thing and then he'll look and it's another. Right? So he heard in chapter 1 the, the sound of rushing waters and trumpets and then he turned and he looked and he saw one among the lampstands. You would expect to turn and see a rushing waterfall. You turn and you see Jesus standing there as priest. At one point, John hears, um, I, I don't want to confuse this in my mind, but he hears the, the, the worship of multitudes of multitudes of multitudes of people from every tribe, tongue, and language. He looks, and there's this Israelite army there. So there's this look here dynamic that happens all the time. And we see that here where this one is described as the, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is conquered. And then John looks, and then look at verse 6 in chapter 5. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. So we have this glorious God. We have Jesus who will uh, 
bring about the completion and the outworking of God's purpose in the world, and then we're told how he did it. How did the lion do it? The lion did it by submitting himself to God completely, by submitting himself to God's wrath, by submitting himself to suffering, by being a sacrificial lamb. That's the way the lion overcame. You know, the gospel isn't that Jesus came in roaring, destroying his enemies, because if he'd come that way the first time, who would be dead? Right? He came the first time suffering faithfully, submitting to his father, doing his father's work, obeying where we failed, all the way to death on a cross. That's how he accomplished victory. And the point of the book of Revelation for us is, how are we going to accomplish victory? That's a legitimate question to ask every day that you wake up. How do you accomplish victory every day? I think if we were to have like a, a heat map of our emotional life, probably most of us would think that we overcome politically, right? You got to get the right Supreme Court justices uh, on the court. You got to get the right person in office. We've got to win. We can't lose. And, and it's always in our minds, in our worst moments, tied to, because we've got to take back America for God. Well, first of all, I hate to be this way, but the God that's been worshipped in America for 200 years is probably not very close to the God of the Bible. It's more like a, a civil deity who uh, morally cares about us, but is generally separated from us. And, and so we've got to get the right people in office to get God back in America. And we've got to make these political victories in order to do this. Did Jesus, every time Jesus stood up against a political opponent in the Gospels, what did he do? He kind of lost, didn't he? I mean, he stood before the, 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 the political arm of the temple. Now, he didn't really lose, but he apparently lost. And then he stood before Pilate. How'd that go? He ended up on a tree. We could probably bring a kind of God back to America using political power. And I'm not against politics. I vote. I care. I try to keep up. It's just not where my hope is. Where's our hope? Where should our hope be? It's in Jesus. But listen to me. Our hope also has to be in living like Jesus. And what do I mean by that? By dying to ourselves and submitting to God every day and putting our hope in, in, in the institution that he has brought about for the cleansing and remaking of the world. And which institution is that? What you do in here every Sunday is more important than what you'll do on that Tuesday in November. Just period. doesn't make the other important. It just makes it relatively unimportant. When we gather and when we decide every day to submit to the Lord and to live out his purposes in our lives, even if it costs us social capital, even if it costs us real economic capital, even if it costs us our life, we're to die a thousand times a day. And doesn't God give you plenty of opportunities to die every day? He gives me opportunities to die from the time I wake up. I rarely lose my temper and sling things. I'm unfortunately proud of that. Uh, this morning, I slung my sweatpants. It was a terrible scene in the dark of my room when my wife was trying to sleep because I couldn't find my wallet because I like knowing where my stuff is. I've got issues. Pray for me. Um, that was a chance to die, wasn't it? It was a chance instead of saying, you know, because I was worried what if somebody has my wallet. We went to the laundromat yesterday to wash our comforter because we can't do it in a laundry at home. I thought... 
uh, terribly, I, I say this to my shame, what if somebody from the laundromat got my wallet? Isn't that awful on every level? And I was mad. And that was a chance to die this morning, wasn't it? It's a chance to die when I have an agenda that apparently isn't God's in His sovereignty. There's a chance to die every day when I can confess my sin to someone or not confess my sin. It's a chance to die every day when I can get angry at my children because they're ruining my quiet moment. It's a chance to die every Sunday morning when you'd rather be watching NFL or staying at home in bed. It's a chance to die, but the Bible says that it was through dying that Jesus brought the gospel to the world, and it's through dying that you and I will take the gospel to the world. And so this lion is, is the lamb. And what this lamb is going to do is he's getting ready to open up judgment on God's enemies. And he's getting ready to open the, the promises for God's people for the future. And, and this works no matter how you interpret this book. You can interpret this as God destroying the Romans a couple hundred years later. You can look at it as God in the future destroying all sin and ushering his people into glory. You can look at this as God destroying his people Jerusalem and freeing up the church, which is the way I do. Don't hate me. Um, any way you look at this, the same thing is happening here. Jesus has earned the right to carry out God's work, and he did it through his death. And because of that, he is praised. So how can we very quickly apply this message? Here's how we can very quickly apply this message. And th these are for me, right? I'm convicted this morning. I need to get things out of my life that destroy my imaginative ability to imagine the glory of God and be res respond to it. I probably need to watch less television, honestly. Uh, and I really need somebody to hold me to that, Neil. So, all <laughs> right. Because uh, I, I, you know, I like to relax with TV in the evening, but too many explosions, they desensitize you. Like, God wrote the book of Revelation to grab our imagination so that it can be leveraged for faith to his purposes. And if our imaginations are stunted through video games and through TV, it makes us less useful to him. We need to put ourselves in position to be moved by glorious things because it's only in being moved by glorious things that we can be moved for the purpose of God. The second thing we need, to, we need to do is we need to put all our hope in Jesus because he's the one who's earned the right to carry out the purposes of God in the world. And he did it through his sacrificial death. He is our hope and we have to fight a thousand times, a thousand temptations to remember to keep our hope in Jesus Christ, to continually learn more about him. You want to learn more about Jesus this week? Read Jonathan Edwards' sermon on this text, Revelation 4 and 5, where he talks about all these diverse excellencies finding their connection point in Jesus Christ. Start there. The English is hard, but it's worth the work. You can, leak, reek, uh, you can rake for leaves or you can dig for diamonds, right? Read that. Center your heart on Jesus. And then looking at Jesus, remember that God's purposes in the world are accomplished not when you exercise a lever of power that the world offers, but when you die to yourself every day a thousand times. Treating your wife and your children with respect in the morning and laying down your desire to look good in people's eyes instead of share the gospel with them is the way that the world is going to be won. Not because Judge Kavanaugh got on the bench. Right? And so that's the way we're going to apply this morning. And we can do that because our God is faithful. Let's pray.